Let me encourage you to take a copy of God's word now and turn to the passage we're going to be studying today, John 19, verses 31 through 42. Okay, whew, I gather myself here. We're continuing our series, The Road to Resurrection, in the Gospel of John. And I know, I know all of you are anxious to get to the resurrection. Let's get there, Pastor Tony. Come on out. Well, hold on now, okay? Easter's next week. And, and John has one more episode in his gospel, in the life of Jesus, that he wants to share with us, actually describing Jesus' death. And John wants us to be absolutely clear, as his readers, that Jesus was indeed dead, and that, that, I know that's shocking. I know that might be just, the son of God is dead. How do I make sense of that? I'm sure John struggled with that. He was at the cross. He saw Jesus die. He heard Jesus's last words. Some of those words were addressed to him. And, and yet, you know, John, John is wrestling with how can the son of God be dead? But he wants us to know, nevertheless, that it happened, that he died, and we need to reckon with it historically, theologically, and also personally. There are some who try to reckon with Jesus's death or this whole story in John by saying that he actually didn't die. In Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, he discusses various views of what's called the swoon theory. Have y'all heard this before? It's the idea that Jesus just kind of swooned, fainted on the cross and, and was put in the tomb alive. And then the coolness of the tomb, because of it, 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 it revived him. And then, you know, it, afterwards he came to his disciples and said, ta-da, I'm back. What do y'all think about that, Harvest Decatur? Can we, can we vote that down? I mean, just think about the, the silliness of that. Jesus, after suffering that horrible scourging, being whipped within an inch of his life and then crucified, feigned death, and then they, they wrapped him from head to toe, put him in the tomb. Jesus ripped off his Grave clothes after he was awoken by the coolness of the tomb. You know, moved that big rock all by himself, whipped the guards, and went over to his disciples and said, I never really died. I just faked it. That, look, John's having nothing to do with that. He wants no part of that. And in fact, you know, that's kind of the modern day swoon theory or something that's emerged over the centuries. John was dealing with similar theories even in his own day. There was something that was circulating in John's day called docetism from the Greek dokeo, which means to suppose or to seem. It just seemed like Jesus died. It just seemed like, you know, he was on the cross and suffering there. John's having none of that. He saw Jesus die. He saw blood and water flow from his side. He knew Jesus died. He had absolutely no doubt that Jesus died. And so you might say, okay, well, Pastor Tony, do we need another 12 verses to convince us that Jesus is dead? Do we need another sermon before the resurrection here? Well, in John's mind, we do, because we need to, to be clear that Jesus actually died. And yet there's something else that John wants to convey in these verses. He wants to let us know that even in Jesus' death, there is power in his death. You know, when you die someday, there's, it's, there's a powerlessness to it. You, you just die and you're just kind of a shell of what you once were. But when Jesus dies, in Jesus' case, there is wonder-working power in his death. 
There is power through his death. That's the title of this message this morning. So go ahead and write this down as number one in your notes. Let's start here. Let's talk about the power of God in Jesus' death. The power of God in Jesus' death. Last week, we saw Jesus alive on the cross. He was alive, but just barely. And Jesus, by the way, wasn't uttering curses on his enemies from the cross. He wasn't angry or spiteful towards the Roman soldiers underneath him who were divvying up his clothes and gambling for his garments. He wasn't screaming insults at Pilate or at the Jewish leaders who had conspired to humiliate him and to torture him and execute him. What was Jesus doing instead, according to the Gospel of John? Jesus was taking care of Mama. Jesus was taking care of her and also his, his beloved disciple, John. And in verse 30, Jesus uttered these final words in Greek, to telestai, it is finished, it's done, the sacrifice is made. And then John tells us that Jesus bowed his head, and I'm going to go old King James on you if I can. He gave up the ghost. He gave up the ghost. Now, we, we say that as a euphemism for death, right? He gave up the ghost. But, you know, we don't really have power over that in the way that Jesus did. I, w- I want you all to know that. You know, most people die before they want to die, or they keep living even though they want to die. We don't, we don't have control of our, we, don't, we can't give up the ghost like Jesus gives up the ghost. But in the way that John describes it here, Jesus was in control. Look at verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, to tell us it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus is in control. Remember what Jesus said earlier, John 10? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You don't have that authority. Jesus does. And Jesus exercises that in that moment of great weakness and humility. And now Jesus, on the cross, gives up his spirit. And the timing of this I want you all to see this. The timing of this is crucial because look at verse 31. Look what happens next. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for the Sabbath, that Sabbath was a high day, meaning it was the Sabbath of Passover week. It was a very important Sabbath in Jewish life. The Jews came to Pilate and he asked that the legs of these crucifixion victims might be broken and that they might be taken away, taken off the cross. So it's, I mean, it's Passover week. It's, it's Friday afternoon. It's getting late in the day. Jesus was put on the cross around noon. He's suffered for several hours on the cross. If you remember from Fiddler on the Roof, the Sabbath doesn't start on Saturday morning. It starts on Friday night at dusk. And so there's the sense of urgency, urgency, urgency. Let's get these bodies off the cross. Let's get these guys killed. Let's get these guys executed so that we can get on with our holy stuff at Sabbath time. There's irony in that, isn't there? Let's do this unholy thing. Let's finish this unholy thing so that we can get holy for God. And of course, this wasn't the custom for the Romans. The Romans, you know, crucifixion was a long and bloody thing, and they liked it that way. They liked for people to suffer for hours and for days on the cross because it was a deterrent. It was a a signal to everybody, don't mess with us or you're going to end up like these guys on the cross. And sometimes the Romans would even leave crucified victims up on the cross after they're dead to let vultures pick their bodies clean. But, but Pilate doesn't want to agitate the Jews any more than they're already agitated. He doesn't want to antagonize them. 
So he agrees to their request. And in verse 32, so the soldiers came up to, and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with Jesus. So remember, Jesus was in the middle, one on the right, one on the left, broke their legs. And you might say, well, what does that do? What, what, why does that speed up the death? Well, like I said last week, when you're crucified, you're stretched out in such a way and you're sagging in such a way that your chest cavity is closed. So you actually have to pull yourself up and push up with your legs that are nailed to the cross in order to get enough breath to breathe in. So all of that goes away. So, I mean, you're basically agonizing, suffocating until you pull yourself up and breathe. And that could last for a few days until you eventually wear yourself out and then you suffocate. Well, the Jews want to speed this up. Let's get this over with. So if you break their legs, then they can no longer push themselves up and death would happen quicker. You might even say mercifully it happens quicker after they break their legs. But as for Jesus, so they break the legs of the two people crucified with Jesus. What about Jesus? Look at Jesus, verse 33. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, you know, they can't risk him not being dead because their life depends on him being dead. So just to make sure, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Verse 35 is fascinating to me. Fascinating. Because what is John saying here in his many words? This is John talking. He said, I saw it. Believe me, I saw his death. I saw the spear. I saw the blood and water flow from him. My testimony is true. You remember how 1 John opens? Remember when I preached through 1 John a couple years ago? Remember how John starts that epistle? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes. I saw it. I saw him die. Take that, you Gnostics. Take that, you Docetists. Take that swoon theory. You don't know what you're talking about. I saw him die. <laughs> Bob's with me. Let me just linger in this moment for a second. So that's verse 35, but you know, verse 34 is fascinating too. Okay, let's look at this. Because this verse carries a lot of freight. Let me reread it for you. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Let me, let me just be clear about what's going on here. There is both biology and theology happening here, okay? Biology and theology. Let me, let me explain the biology of this for those of you who are interested. Why would a dead body discharge both blood and water? Well, the medical term for this is pericardial effusion. And here's how Dr. Alexander Metherall explains it in the case for Christ. You can read this on the screen. Even before Jesus died, the hypovolemic shock would have caused a sustained rapid heart weight that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart called a pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, lungs called a pleural effusion. Why is that significant? 
because of what happened when the Roman soldier came around. Being fairly certain that Jesus was dead, confirmed it by thrusting a spear into his right side. It's probably the right side, that's not certain. But from the description, it was probably the right side between the ribs. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart. So when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion came out. This would have the appearance of a clear fluid like water, followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitness John described in his gospel. There's your medical explanation for what happened here. Now, John's not a doctor, and he's not a scientist. He's not describing in this detail. What's, he's just saying blood and water flew, flew out of Jesus. You know, it came out of Jesus. And he's letting you know through his gospel that biologically speaking, Jesus was dead. And even if he wasn't dead before the spear thrust, he was dead after the spear thrust. Everybody with me? He's dead. So, that's the biology of what's happening. What about the theology? Well, Jesus really did die. The docetism is wrong. The swoon theory is wrong. John wants you to know that their theory is junk and that he saw him die. And beyond that, theologically speaking, there's significance in both the blood and water flowing from Jesus' side. Blood is a symbol of our salvation. Water, we're having baptisms next week, right? Water is a symbol of our cleansing. John Calvin would say that blood signals our, symbolizes our justification and the water symbolizes our sanctification. And so both of those things flowing from Jesus' side, both of these things are made possible in Jesus' death upon that cross. Fanny Crosby knew about this. She knew this. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. You might say, that's kind of graphic. That's kind of gross. What's wrong with Fanny Crosby? Is she sadistic or something? No, she's a theologian. She gets this. She understands. Tell me if you've heard this before. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. And by the way, that's not all. That's not the only theological thing that's happening here. You're like, how could there be more, Pastor Tony? There's more. There's more than I can get to today, but I'm going to do my best here. There's, there's Old Testament prophecy that's being fulfilled in this moment and, and John wants to point that out to you. Not just in the, in the not breaking of Jesus' bone, but the, the piercing of his side was theologically speaking a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Look at verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Hmm, it's like God was orchestrating this. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Oh, harvesticator, I wish I had six weeks to go through this with you. To link all of this Old Testament imagery to what's happening with Jesus right now on the cross. I don't got six weeks. Next week is Easter. So I gotta get through this quick. So listen up, I'm gonna talk fast and I'm gonna, I'm gonna synthesize, okay? What is going on here? 
What Old Testament fulfillment is happening in Jesus' death? Well, here's the first thing that's being fulfilled. Here's the first connection. The bone's not being broken. The Passover lamb in the Old Testament was central. That great historical event, event for the Israelites was their coming out of Egypt, the Exodus. And on the night before that happened, they had Passover. And the, the, the angel of death passed them over if they had the blood that was smeared on their doorframe. And then they had the lamb and they consumed the lamb and they ate the lamb and they didn't break one of those lambs. They didn't any of those lambs bones. Okay. I said, well, well, why is that significant? That's it's repeated again and again. Do not break any of the bones of that lamb. Why? I mean, the lamb's already dying. What does it matter if his bones are broken or not? Well, symbolically, that was a symbol of its innocence. The, the unbrokenness of his bones was a signal of its blemishlessness. It was a spotless lamb. It was a blemishless lamb. And all of that imagery, Old Testament imagery, even of the blood that's spattered upon the doorframe that makes the angel of death pass over, that points forward to the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, not just for the sins of Israelites, but for all of us. Are y'all with me? This is good stuff, Harvest. This is good. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Which, which adds to the irony of this. They're in Passover mode, all these Jews, and they're in Sabbath mode while they're executing the real Passover lamb. While the real Sabbath rest is on the cross. Their key to Sabbath rest is right here, and they're more worried about fulfilling the Old Testament command. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You didn't buy your salvation. And God didn't buy you with silver and gold. He bought you with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, says Peter. Also speaking prophetically of this event, King David says in Psalm 34, verse 20, he keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now that's the broken bones, or lack thereof, part of this passage. There's also the pierced part, which is another amazing thing that's fulfilled in Jesus's death. The fact that the soldiers pierced Jesus's side instead of breaking his bones, breaking his legs, that's surprising. That's unexpected. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, it's remarkable that the Roman soldiers did not do what they were commanded to do, break the victim's legs, but they did do what they were not supposed to do, pierce the Savior's side. How do we account for that? How do we make sense of that? Well, God was overseeing this to accomplish exactly what he wanted to accomplish. And the fact that Jesus was pierced not just in his side, but also in his hands and in his feet. That's actually even more amazing than the fact that his bones weren't broken. You can say, how could it be more amazing, Pastor Tony? It is. It is. I'll show you why. The passage that's, that's being fulfilled here is Zechariah 12, verse 10. The piercing. And here's what Zechariah writes in that Old Testament prophecy. He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, this is Yahweh speaking, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
And to that you might say, how in the world could God's people pierce Yahweh? Can Yahweh be pierced? How, how is that possible? It's metaphorical, right? It's metaphorical like Mary's heart was pierced when she saw what happened to Jesus. It's pierced like, like hurt. No, it's not metaphorical. It's literal. They literally pierced Yahweh. And then they put him on a cross. And just to be clear, Zechariah 12, 10, if you do some research on that this week, it might be a good idea getting ready for Good Friday. It's actually only partially fulfilled at Christ's first coming. It awaits a future fulfillment when the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look upon the God whom they have pierced, Jesus Christ, and they will mourn the way that they rejected him. And Christ, the pierced one, will set up his kingdom and rule forever. Christ, in a pierced state, those of you who are savvy Bible readers, you know that when Jesus is raised from the dead, when he shows up before Thomas, what does he show Thomas? In a resurrected body. Look at the holes. Look at my piercings. Look at what happened to me. And, and Thomas is like, I believe, I believe. I'm putting my finger inside the, that hole there. And I, I get this sense that those piercings, those things that happen to Jesus' body, they're going to be there even in his resurrected state as, as an example to us, as proof, as a reason for us to worship him forever and ever and ever and ever. You see these hands in eternity? Jesus is going to say to us, this is how you got here by the sacrifice that I made for you. They pierced Yahweh. They put him on a cross. He died for our sins and he saved us and we're going to live with him forever. What do y'all think about that? Are y'all tracking with this? You love this stuff like I love it? I hope you do. There's more here than I can even get to. Jesus is the Passover lamb slain for our sins. Jesus is Yahweh pierced for our transgressions. Jesus is the living water, the bread of life, the light of the world, the Lamb of God, the new Passover, the new Sabbath, the King of the Jews, the King of the universe. Has any man ever done so much in death? Has any man ever, even after dead, fulfilled so much? We haven't even gotten to the resurrection yet. We're not, we haven't even got to the resurrection yet. And we're, we're marveling at what Jesus has done. You remember Braveheart? You remember that climactic scene in that movie when William Wallace says, every man dies, not every man truly lives. It's true. Every man dies. But no man dies like this. Only Jesus. We know that he's more than a man. Nobody accomplishes more in his death than Jesus. And in Jesus' death, we have life. We have life. Okay. Number two. That's the power of God at work in Jesus' death. Let's talk about the power of God in Jesus' burial. Look with me at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave permission. So he came and took away his body. 
Joseph of Arimathea, he's, he's kind of a mysterious figure. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, but, you know, just kind of in passing. We know that he was a rich man. We know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. We know that he was well-respected. So there's a few things that we know about him. We know that he owned a tomb not far from Golgotha, the place where uh, Jesus was crucified. And we know, according to John here in verse 38, that he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Let me just state the obvious for you. If Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple before this, he's not a secret disciple anymore. He's coming out as a follower of Jesus. And by the way, you know, the Jews did want Jesus' body taken down, but they did not want him put into a tomb, a new tomb. They were probably hoping that the Romans would take his body down and throw it in a ditch somewhere or put it in a mass grave or maybe, you know, throw it onto Gehenna, that, that burning trash heap outside of the city. They did not want this kind of situation where one of their own, one of the Sanhedrin, thwarts their plans and decides to do something, can I say it, kingly with Jesus and his burial. So if a guy, if ever a guy was blacklisted for an action in the Sanhedrin, this guy, Joseph, would have been blacklisted after he does this. And by the way, he's not alone. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also. You remember that guy, Nicodemus? Y'all remember him from uh, John 3? He met Jesus secretly in the middle of the night, and he tried to cut a deal with Jesus to get, to get him to stop being a thorn in the side of the Jewish leaders. But Jesus turned the tables on him, and he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, how, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he go back into his mama's? You know, Nicodemus was like, he could not understand what Jesus was saying. By the way, just a little bit on that analogy of being born again. Here's why that analogy is so powerful. Being born again. Are you born again? Are you now? Harvest Decatur? You didn't do that by your own work. Just like you didn't work the first time when you were born. Somebody else worked for you. Somebody else bled for you. Somebody else suffered so that you might be born. See how the analogy works? So Jesus shows up and says, you must be born again, but you're not going to do this work. I'm going to do this work. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to bleed. I'm going to work so that you might be born again. Are y'all feeling the analogy? That's, I don't know if Nicodemus has it yet. I don't know if he's born again even yet, but he's about to figure out what all this means when Jesus rises from the dead and when Jesus pours out his spirit on all of his disciples. So here's Nicodemus. Joseph, Nicodemus, these two old rich guys. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, secretly, now he's, man, he's coming out too as a Jesus follower. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Whew, that's a lot. That's how you bury a king. This is how you bury a king. I, I, I've actually been thinking about this throughout this week. Jesus' whole life was an exercise in humility. And his death was utter humiliation. The only time that Jesus is really treated like a king 
maybe other than Palm Sunday, as Ryan mentioned earlier, was, was after his death. Then he's a king. He's buried as a king. I find that remarkable, and it's actually prophesied in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says this, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus. They bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And now in the place where he was crucified, Golgotha, right? So in that area, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid in. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there in this tomb, in this garden. What does that make you think of, that garden language? I think it should make you think of the Garden of Eden. Because that's where God placed the first Adam in a garden. And alive, the first Adam brought death into this world. Now God places the second Adam in a garden and dead, Jesus is going to bring life into this world. And according to verse 42, that's it. That's where they left Jesus. Dead, wrapped in burial cloths, doused with 70 pounds of myrrh and aloes so that his putrefying flesh won't stink. Matthew tells us they rolled a boulder, a huge boulder in front of the tomb so that grave robbers won't come in and steal that body, and so that Jesus' rotting flesh won't escape, and the stink of it won't fill the garden. And then they'll come back in about a year, after the, the flesh has rotted off of his bones, and they'll collect the bones and put them away, and then the tomb will be ready for some other dead person to enter into. That's, that's the plan. That's what they thought, anyway. That's what any level-headed, clear-thinking person would have concluded at that moment. Is that what happens? What happens next, Pastor Tony? What happens next? What happens next? We got to know. I can't tell you what happens next. It's not Easter yet. You know what happens next. Don't you now? You wouldn't be here if you didn't believe or at least have some inkling of what happens next. By the way, why do you come here on Sunday anyway? Not just Easter Sunday, every Sunday. Why don't you come on Sabbath, like the Old Testament Israelites did, Saturday, and worship? It's because of what happens next. Come back next week and I'll tell you. How's that? Come back next week and I'll tell you what happens next. Okay, before we're done, I want... I want to explore these two characters a little bit more, Joseph of Arimathea and then Nicodemus, these two old religious rich men who do the unthinkable. And I want you in these next few moments to put yourselves in their shoes and ask yourself this question, what would I be willing to give up for Christ? 
Harvest to cater. Everybody listening? What would you be willing to give up for Christ? What would you be willing to give up for Christ? These men gave up a lot. Would you be willing to give up your comfort? Here's what they were willing to do. It's no easy task to take a body off of a cross. They would have had to remove bloody, dead flesh from the nails in his hands and in his feet. They would have had to catch Jesus' body as it lurched forward and fell down on top of them. They would have been covered in Jesus' blood, blood from his wounds, blood from his head, possibly the crown of thorns still there, blood from Jesus' hands, blood from Jesus' feet. They would have had to carry that bloody carcass all the way to the tomb and wrapped it with white strips of linen, wrapping up the open sores of his infected back after it had been flayed open by the Roman scourger's whip. It would have been a bloody, disgusting mess. Why am I telling you that? I'm not trying to be gory here. I'm just being straight with you. They were willing to endure that. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? They love Jesus. They love Jesus enough to be covered with that bloody mess. How about you? How much do you love him? Harvest the cater. And that's not the worst of it. Let me ask you this question. Would you be willing to give up your position? Warren Wearsby writes this. Of course, when the two men touched his dead body, they defiled themselves and could not participate in Passover. What difference does it make to them? They had found the Lamb of God. And once word got out about what they had done for Jesus, they can forget about their role as a Sanhedrin leader. That's not going to happen. Because these actions that they're involved in right now, burying Jesus, would have been traitorous. These guys betrayed the Jewish people and, and by their actions. Would you be willing to give up your position for Christ? Your job, your role, your respectability? Remember what Jesus said about this, better to lose your life than waste it. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. Who said that? Jesus said that. These guys are willing to do it. What about your reputation, Harvest Decatur? Jewish leaders were respected. Members of the Sanhedrin had power. It's probably where their wealth came from. They had wealth, they had power, they had position, they had reputation. They're going to lose all of this because of this action. They may even lose the respect of their family members. How, I mean, how are they going to show up on Friday night to get ready for Passover and for the Sabbath in, in clothes covered with blood, the blood of Jesus, this guy who was executed by the Romans? How do you celebrate Passover after making yourself unclean like that? They may have even lost relationships with family members over this. That has certainly happened again and again throughout the centuries for Christianity. And I'm not just talking about Jews who convert. I'm talking about Muslims who convert. I'm talking about Catholics who embrace true faith in Christ. I'm talking about all people who come to Christ. There are relationships lost in that. What are you willing to give up for Christ? Your relationships, your reputation, 
What about your life? What about your life? I don't know what happened to Joseph and Nicodemus. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But if the Jewish leaders saw them do this, I can imagine they said something like this. You guys are next. You guys, what happened to him? You guys are next. You love that guy, Jesus? Okay. You get what he'll get, what he got. You're going to get the same thing. Like I said, I don't know what happened to them, but I know what happened to James, the brother of John who wrote this book. He was put to death for following Christ. I know what happened to Stephen. He was stoned to death for following Christ. I know that Peter was crucified upside down for following Christ. I know that the majority of the 12 disciples were put to death for their faith in Christ. John actually was the exception. The guy who wrote this book, he was exiled to the island of Patmos so he could write the book of Revelation. Most of them died. Chances are Joseph and Nicodemus, they died too. And they suffered. And they were alienated from their community. How about you, Harvest Decatur? How about you? What are you willing to give up for Christ? Your comfort, your position, your reputation, your life. Let me close with this. There's a lot of verses in this passage that I would say it's worthy of you to chew on them this week, Passion Week. A lot of verses for you to ponder, meditate on. I've given you, I think, a lot of things to think through this morning, but there's more research that can be done and more, more things that could be said about these verses. But there's actually a verse, there's one verse in this passage that I think is the most powerful of all the other verses. For me personally, anyway. Can you guess what verse that is in our passage for today? It might surprise you. It's verse 35. Let me read that again for you. This is where John says autobiographically, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. Why? That you also may believe. The reason I think this is the most powerful verse here is because it kind of catches you off guard. Just reading along and John's telling the story about Jesus and then you're getting maybe swept away in the narrative of what's happening and all of a sudden it's like John steps outside of his story and he talks directly to you. What are you going to do about this? What are are you going to do about this? I'm writing this to you for a reason, not just to tell some great story about a great man, but that you might believe. That's why I'm telling you this story. It's a great moment. Actually, it reminds me, if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, there's a moment in that movie after Jesus is removed from the cross and he's being cradled by Mary. And Mary, instead of looking at Jesus, she turns her gaze directly at the camera. And movie makers call this the, the fourth, you break the fourth wall, which is actually bad etiquette for movie making. But it's a really, really poignant scene. As she, she looks right at you, 
the audience after you've just seen Jesus crucified as if to say, what are you going to do about this? This happened. What are you going to do about it? It's a moment that actually makes you kind of uncomfortable watching the movie. Like, why is she looking at me? And you know, it's, I mean, I appreciate what Mel Gibson did with that movie. But I, I don't think that moment belongs to Mary. I don't. I know why Gibson did it, because of his Catholic leanings. And if I had Mel Gibson's talent to make a movie like that, I wouldn't give that moment to Mary. I'd give it to John. I'd give it to John, because that's what John does in verse 35. He breaks the fourth wall, and he looks right at you. And he says, what are you going to do about this? He jars you. He who saw it has borne witness, his testimony true, and he knows that he is telling you the truth. Why? That you may believe. In other words, I'm not just telling you this sob story. I'm not just telling you this fairy tale. I'm not just telling you this thing that is historically accurate. These things happened. I saw it. It was true. And I, I'm telling you right now so that you may believe so that you may believe in this death as payment for your sin. Do you believe, Harvest Decatur? Do you believe? Don't just come to church. Don't just celebrate Easter at Easter time. John, don't just read the Bible. Believe it. Believe and be saved. That's what John wants for you. Let's bow in a word of prayer together.